Welcome to Science Sunday, uh, sponsored by the College of Arts and Sciences here at the Ohio State University. Science Sunday, now in its eighth year, um, is dedicated to engaging the public on topics of importance to us as individuals and as a society. I'm Jay Hollick. I'm the director of the Center for Applied Plant Sciences. And it's my great pleasure to represent the center today in um, hosting our speaker, Barat, Dr. Barat Bouchon. Before introducing uh, Dr. Bouchon, I want to bring your attention to some of the promotional materials that are available outside the auditorium. First, there's a pamphlet describing the Science Study series that gives you a preview of the remaining six lectures for this year. Second, there's a brochure that highlights the uh, College of Arts and Sciences Voices of Excellence podcast, uh, where you can listen to recordings of today's presentation, uh, as well as all prior Sunday, Science Sunday presentations. And then finally, there's a, a flyer promoting a November 1st uh, public outreach event that's entitled The Neuroscience of Self-Control, that is sponsored by the Department of Psychology and Economics in collaboration with WOSU. As always, at the Science Sunday events, we will hold a reception immediately after today's uh, lecture upstairs on the second floor in the Traditions Room. So please join us for further conversation and additional opportunities to interact with Dr. Bouchon. So the Center for Applied Plant Sciences supports interdisciplinary <coughs> research that's focused on uh, the types of plant biology that can be better understood or used to improve the human condition. And it's in this context the center is really excited to help support some of the work of Dr. Bouchon's group as it relates to the development of bio-inspired materials, uh, bio-inspired synthetic materials. And we're really delighted today to be able to share some of Dr. Bouchon's research with you. So about Dr. Bouchon, uh, he's the eminent, uh, he's an Ohio eminent scholar and the Howard D. Winfigler Professor at the Ohio State University College of Engineering where he also serves as the director of the Nanoprobe Laboratory for Bio and Nanotechnology and Biomimetics. Bouchon holds two master's degrees, a PhD in mechanical engineering, an MBA, and four honorary degrees. His research interests include fundamental studies with a focus on scanning probe techniques in the interdisciplinary areas of bio and nanotribology, bio and nanomechanics, bio and nanomaterials characterization, and the application to bio and nanotechnology and biomimetics. Dr. Bichon is also uh, has extensive experience in industry. Back in the 70s, he worked for uh, several different companies, including uh, IBM, and was at the Alameda Research Center in San Jose, California. He's considered by some uh, a pioneer in tribology, that is, the science of engineering uh, and engineering of interacting surfaces in relative motion and in the mechanics of magnetic storage devices. Uh, he's a very prolific author, has uh, eight books to his name, as well as over 800 primary research papers. He holds 25 different patents. Uh, and he's received more than two dozen awards for his contribution to science and technology from professional societies, industry, and the US government agencies, including a Lifetime uh, Life, Achievement, Life Achievement Tribology Award, and the Institution of Chemical Engineers uh, Global Award. And last, but not least, he's a very valued affiliate of the Center for Applied Plant Sciences. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Bharat Bouchon to Science Sundays.
Thank you, Jay. Good afternoon. Good. You're awake. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank the uh, organizers for inviting me to give this Science Sunday's lecture. Uh, as scientists and professors, we give a technical talk to our peers, and this is the second talk I'm giving to people of uh, broad background. I also see the age group. I think I have a kid who's one year old. I have another one, two year old, and I'm sure some of you are retired. So the, I'll try to connect the older ones. I'm not sure if I can connect with one and two years old. And, uh, I'd like to thank you for taking the time on Sunday afternoon to come and listen to me. And I hope after my lecture, you're, you'll have more fascination with the nature. And when you go out, and look at a species which has a unique function, you'll wonder how nature does it. And if you're an engineer or a scientist, you will try to figure out how do you exploit it for commercial applications. <laughs> and uh, so with that, I'll start uh, my talk. Uh, uh, I'll start with a few introductory remarks uh, on the field of biomimetics. And then I'll give you an overview of some lessons from living nature. Very briefly, I'll introduce bioarchitecture and then talk about unique patterns used by nature. And then with a broad background, I'll focus the uh, rest of my talk on four living species I've selected. I'll talk about mechanisms and their applications and then end my talk with Outlook. First, uh, a few words uh, on the word biomimetics. Like many scientific words, uh, the word biomimetics is derived from a Greek word, biomimesis, which means mimicking biology or living nature. Other words used include biomimicry, again, mimicking biology, bionics, or biognosis. Albert Einstein stated, Look deep into nature and you'll understand everything. Nature is a great master. And the reason he stated that <coughs> is that nature has gone through evolution over some 3.8 billion years. And by evolution, by trial and error, it has developed species with the functionality it wants to provide by using commonly found materials and routine fabrication methods. And nature really has a limited toolbox, so it capitalizes on hierarchical structure uh, with dimensions ranging from macro scale to nano scale. So most of the things we see in nature uh, have features on the order of a nano scale. Bernoulli stated nature always tends to act in the simplest way, and da Vinci stated in nature, nothing is lacking and nothing is superfluous. And again, the reason is that nature has gone through evolution, it has time on its side, and the things it has done, it done it in the simplest way and most efficient and elegant way uh, to produce a species. So in the field of biomimetics, we look to nature to identify species which provide a functionality 
we are interested in for exploiting for commercial applications. We study how nature does it and be inspired by it. We necessarily do not copy it, be inspired by it, and then by using smart materials and manufacturing processes available to us, we create those structures in the lab for commercial applications. And since we're getting a cue from nature, we try to use materials and the processes which are environmentally friendly. So we're really working uh, in the field of green science and technology. Uh, there are some 1.7 million living organisms are known to exist. They're already been discovered. And it's believed by botanists that there are some 10 million organisms. So some 83% are yet to be discovered. And the concern uh, the botanists have is the sum of uh, the organism may become extinct before we ever discover them. So that means the information uh, present in nature would, uh, would be lost uh, forever. So there, as an engineer and scientist, for us there are a large number of flora and fauna which are properties which we can use for commercial applications. So this uh, chart gives an overview of various species and objects from living nature and their selected function. So we'll start with bacteria. Many of the bacteria propel themselves by miniature motor <coughs> known as flagellum motor. And this motor is driven at 100,000 RPM and it has a bearing with a diameter of uh, about 20 to 30 nanometers. So to put the dimensions in perspective, the diameter of an atom is a fraction of a nanometer, and the diameter of human hair is 100,000 nanometer. So the bearing which bacteria uses has a diameter of 20 nanometer, is a small fraction of uh, size of the human hair. Uh, because of the diversity in structure and morphology, plants provide multifunctional properties. Some plants are superhydrophobic, means they're water repellent. Some are hydrophilic, so they have an affinity to water. And uh, some exhibit low adhesion, and others exhibit high adhesion. And uh, the two examples on the left, the first one is lotus leaf. Lotus leaf uh, is superhydrophobic, and I'm going to talk about this in detail in a few minutes. When you put a droplet on the leaf surface, the droplet is nearly, nearly spherical. And it repels water. And the reason is that the lotus leaf dies with a fungi, fungus attack. And lotus leaf is found in pond. So nature has created the leaf surface uh, so that it repels water and does not create fungi. The second is an example of a pitcher plant. It's a carnivorous pitcher plant which feeds an insect. It consists of a rim, uh, which is slippery, wetted by water, uh, rainwater, or nectar. And when insect sits on the rim, it slides into the digested area, and the pitcher plant can digest it. Uh, various insects, spiders, lizards, and frogs can attach and detach on a variety of surfaces. And at the same time, they can climb on inclined planes, so they represent an example of a reversible adhesion. 
very continuously you're attaching and detaching. And, uh, and some also have superhydrophobicity. So the photograph on the left is that of a water strider. And a water strider can stand on water, can walk on water. So somebody tells you you can't walk on water, tell them the strider does it. So if you can figure out how strider does it, then we can do it ourselves as well. So the legs of the strider <coughs> consist of a micro hairs with a hierarchical structure and they're coated with wax. And it's a hierarchical structure and the wax makes the surface superhydrophobic. And uh, that's responsible for uh, uh, the liquid repellency. Then you have butterfly wings. They're superhydrophobic. Again, water repellent, self-cleaning, have a low adhesion and a low drag. And again, nature does it by hierarchical structure and the wax. Then uh, various insects, spiders, lizards, and frogs can attach and detach. And here is an example of a gecko. Gecko is the largest uh, mammal and uh, lizards uh, family of a species. And it has a three-level hierarchical structure with one billion hairs, billion with a B. So it has over a billion hairs, over two feet, with an area of about 220 millimeters square. And it provides that adhesion by Van der Waals attraction. And some of you may remember in freshman physics, uh, you were taught that Van der Waals forces are very weak, uh, but when you take a very weak force and you multiply it by one billion, is no longer a small force. And that's exactly what Gecko does it. Uh, aquatic animals, uh, such as shark, can move at a fast speed <coughs> with a low drag under turbulent flow. And I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes as well. Then uh, it's been known for some hundred years the bird feathers develop aerodynamic lift and they led to inspiration for flying. The various uh, seashells, uh, bones, and animal teeth have laminated hierarchical structure, which gives a super, superior mechanical properties. It provides a combination of high hardness and high toughness. Normally with engine materials, uh, if they're hard, they're brittle, or if they're soft, uh, then they have uh, a high fracture toughness. And nature does it by using laminated hierarchical structure as shown here from Nacre, it has a calcium carb carbonate layers sandwiched with a protein. Calcium carbonate provides the hardness, and the protein provides the high fracture toughness. A spider web has a very high mechanical strength, both in dry and wet environment. The various insects who can pierce painlessly, and I'll talk about that. Mosquito can painlessly pierce can stay in your body for five minutes, you don't even know it. Mothai has microstructured pillars, and uh, by uh, reflection, they, by selective reflection, they become uh, anti-reflective. The nature also uses structural coloration. It always does not use color pigments, because color pigments uh, are not environmentally friendly, they fade with time, and the nanostructure, 
structuring which is present on a surface and by having a selective reflection you can create the beautiful colors. So colors we enjoy on butterfly wings, some birds, peacock feathers, they're all created by structural coloration, not by color pigments. And uh, we're trying to use uh, uh, the technique to create uh, uh, the colors which are environmentally friendly and also will last a long time. And biological systems also have self-healing characteristics. For example, skin knee, shown here on the left, will heal itself. And so does uh, other uh, uh, body injuries. And nature also uses various sensory aid devices such as ear and eye, which are very complex. So let me digress for a minute. So as scientists and engineers, we take inspiration from living nature for purpose of functionality in engineering applications. Whereas artists and architects take inspiration from nature for the purpose of beauty and design and functionality in architecture. And we call this field as bioarchitecture, which consists of biomimetic, which means copying nature and bioinspired, going further, art and architecture. Here are example, uh, two examples of biomimetics in art. On the <coughs> left are four uh, examples of brooches from Wencliffe and Arpels collection from early 1900 in Germany, and inspired by snowflake, butterfly wings, uh, orchid, and sycamore leaf. On the right is a painting which represents landscape. Uh, here's an example of by inspiration where we go a step further than what nature does. It's inspired by interior of uh, the bone. Uh, architects have created these uh, chairs uh, with uh, a unique construction. Show an example of biomimetics in art. So that's uh, the rose window of Saint Chapelle Cathedral in Paris. It is inspired by Dahlia flower. Here is a rib vaulting in Exeter Cathedral in Exeter, UK. Uh, this is inspired by ribs with intercostal muscles. So next I want to talk about briefly unique patterns used by nature and they exist throughout the universe. And various species and objects in nature follow the so-called golden ratio and Fibonacci number. Some of you may have heard about it. And so to understand the secrets of the order nature uses, the scientists and mathematicians have been studying uh, these uh, uh, parameters for some <coughs> 2,000 years. Let me first define what is a golden ratio. Golden ratio is a unique ratio whose proportions are considered to represent a functional and aesthetic idea. And for a golden rectangle, the ratio is 1.618. Length to width ratio is 1.618. And from this golden rectangle, we can create a large number of golden rectangles, or one could create a golden spiral. And the golden ratio is found throughout nature, ranging from proportions of the human body and to the spiral shape of Milky Way galaxy, sunflower, dahlia, uh, flower, 
and in seashells. And not only is found in nature, the artists also have used golden ratio to create paintings uh, which are aesthetic. For example, here is a photograph of Mona Lisa. I'm sure all of you have heard of that, and many of you have seen it. And here what you have done is uh, we have superimposed the golden triangle and golden spiral. So if you look at Mona Lisa head, it follows a golden spiral. Okay, look at the entire body, follows a golden rectangle. So artists and engineers have been using what we learn from nature. Another parameter of interest in terms of order used in nature is Fibonacci number. And uh, Fibonacci number is a sequence of values ranging from 0, 1, 1, 2, 2, 3, 3, 5, 8, 13, and so on. And there are many examples in nature which uses Fibonacci number to describe geometries. And here's an example of pineapple, which has uh, interlocking helices 0, 5, 8, and 13. So I've just shown you some examples. There are a lot more you can find in the literature. And if you understand how nature does it, so then uh, we can get the clues for designing surfaces with optimum functionality as well as aesthetics. So with that general background, I want to move to four living species, and I want to talk about mechanisms and applications. I'm going to start with uh, lotus leaf, then talk about shark skin, desert beetle for water collection, and the mosquitoes for painless piercing. So I mentioned the lotus leaf is superhydrophobic, and what I mean by that is water repellent. So if you put a water droplet on a solid surface, and if the surface is superhydrophobic, or extreme water repellent. The droplet is nearly spherical, as shown over here, and it has a very large contentangle, and contentangle is defined here by drawing a tangent where the droplet meets the solid surface and the flat surface. If uh, the surface has an affinity to water, then the water will spread on the surface and the contentangle will be close to zero. It will spread into thin film. And then if surface is somewhat hydro, somewhat water repellent or, or has some infinity, then it will be somewhere in between. Another property lotus leaf uh, provides is self-cleaning. For self-cleaning, in addition to superhydrophobicity, we need a very low tilt angle. So if you tilt a sample and put a water droplet, what is the minimum tilt angle? What's the minimum tilt angle you need before the droplet starts to slide? So one of the requirements of a self-cleaning surface is the tilt angle should be less than 10 degrees. The tilt angle has to do with how much energy is dissipated when the droplet is moving. So here is a, a movie I'd like to show you. So you have a hydrophilic surface on the left, superhydrophobic surface on the right, and we put uh, some chili flakes on the surface so that we can photograph them. So if you put a water droplet on a hydrophilic surface, the droplet slides very slowly and leaves most of the chili flakes behind. Whereas with the superhydrophobic surface, the water droplet rolls instead of slide, and we know that ro rolling friction is much less than sliding friction. When you're driving, tires are rolling, and you can go very fast, friction is very low. But when you slam on the brakes, then you're skidding, and you don't go very far. And uh, so that's uh, another property we are interested in. And this is 
what Lotus Leaf provides. Now these surfaces are of interest in various <coughs> applications, including self-cleaning windows. It'll be nice if you don't have to clean windows, self-cleaning windshields, camera lenses, important problem in autonomous vehicles, uh, exterior paints for buildings, navigation chip utensils, roof tiles, textiles, solar panels, exterior surface in transportation, and even shampoo bottles. In case of a shampoo, normally we put the bottle upside down uh, so that uh, especially when it starts to, uh, the bottles start to empty out and the shampoo get collected uh, in the cap, which looks pretty ugly and it's very difficult to uh, get the last drops of shampoo which you paid for. And when you throw the bottle away, the residual shampoo makes it at the landfill and that is not desirable. So we've been trying to develop self-cleaning bottles for shampoos and detergents. They also exhibit anti-biofouling, which is of interest in membranes or desalination by medical applications and food packaging. And the surfaces can be used for energy conservation because the droplets roll rather than slide. They move very rapidly, they're very low friction, so you have less energy consumption. And by doing some trick like switchable hydrophobic surfaces, you can use them for energy conversion. And this is what Lotus Leaf provides. And, uh, in nature. So here is a photograph of the lotus leaf. It uh, uh, consists of a micro bumps formed by convex papillae <coughs> and it's covered with 3D epicuticular wax which self-assembles in the form of nanotubules. So if you look at uh, these micro bumps at high magnification, those hairs which you see here they're in form of nanotubes, okay? And so it's the wax which makes the surface hydrophobic. When you wax the float, uh, the surface is not wetted very easily because it has a contact angle uh, of 104 degrees. And then if you put the wax on a hierarchical structure like lotus leaf does, then you make it super hydrophobic or super water repellent. And also it pro if it has a low tilt angle, which it does, if you have wax in a hierarchical structure, then it's also self-cleaning. This movie shows what happens when you put a droplet on a leaf. Droplet is nearly spherical. If you contaminate the leaf and you put the water, uh, it cleans the surface. If you put honey on it, honey just runs off. So it's an amazing surface. Now, in many applications, we're not only interested in repelling water, we're interested maybe having a combination of affinity and repellency of water and oil. Maybe you want to repel one liquid, attract another liquid, or repel both, or attract both. So here we created M5 wettability landscape, where on the horizontal axis we plot the water content angle, on the vertical axis we plot the oil content angle. So in this quadrant, you have uh, contact angle both for water and oil larger than 90 so they repel both liquids and in this quadrant you have a contact angle both for water and oil less than 90 so they attract uh, both liquids and here they attract one and repel another and depending on what quadrant you're in you can use it for different application for example here you can use it for self-cleaning anti-fouling anti-smudge uh, a common problem in smart screens 
anti-icing uh, for transportation. And here, you can use it not only self-cleaning and anti-icing for oil water separation. So we are uh, we developing codings uh, of various combinations of affinity and repellency, and we use uh, what we call a layer-by-layer -layer technique. First, we put nanoparticles to create a roughness, and they're held by a polyelectrolyte, and then we put a functional layer on the top, and depending on the functional layer you use, we're using different functional layer, you can get various combinations of repellency and uh, affinity. And so with this technique, we can create material uh, uh, which sits in any of those four quadrants, and we can use it for a variety of applications. So this movie shows, uh, uh, I'm going to show you this movie where we put various liquids on uncoated glass, and a glass which has been coated by the super liquidophobic coating. I'm using the word liquidophobic because liquid includes water, oil, and all other liquids. Hydrophobic from the Latin word means water only. So here we have a surface which repels both. And so first, we're going to put water on the two surfaces. So here the droplet doesn't go very far, whereas here the droplet just rolls off in no time. Next, we put hexadecane, which is an example of oil, dyed blue, and again, it runs off very quickly, whereas it moves very slowly here. Then we put head and shoulder shampoo, and uh, it doesn't move very far, whereas the shampoo is moving fairly rapidly. It doesn't move as fast as water or oil, because the shampoo is very viscous. Next, we put laundry detergent, tight. It's, uh, a big cash cow for a Procter and Gamble. <laughs> and uh, same thing here, that uh, tide moves very rapidly, and whereas uh, tide doesn't move here. So if you, if you apply these coatings on shampoo bottle, detergent bottle, we can get the last drop of the liquid out, and also we can see what's inside the bottle. Uh, next we are interested in self-cleaning. So we contaminate a sample, we take a photograph, we clean with the water and take a photograph again. And here we have done it for glass and a coated sample. So when you look at a glass after cleaning, you see this clumps of debris which is present. We did not remove it. Whereas in the superhydrophobic surface, with the high tilt angle, those particles are gone. And we can remove up to 98% of particles <coughs> by cleaning with water. Another property we're interested in uh, optical applications is transparency. For example, if you want to put this coating on a smart screen, you want to make sure you don't compromise the transparency. So we uh, coated the sample, and then we placed them on the text. And you can see if you're untreated glass, you can read the writing underneath very well. But if it's super olive coating, you can read it reasonably well. And it's a matter of optimizing the thickness of the coating and uh, you can get very high degree of transparency. Another property of interest is anti-fogging in optical applications. You know in winter, when you walk inside the building, your glasses fog up and you can't see it. So it'd be nice to have anti-fogging coating. So here, we've deposited a superhydrophilic coating uh, on the sample, and then we take untreated glass and a treated glass, and uh, we expose it uh, to boiling water. Uh, to collect uh, the fog or the steam, 
And in the case of untreated glass, it's fogged up. You can't read anything underneath. And here it's clear. Nice to have it on glasses. Anti-icing is a, is a major problem in transportation, cars, aeroplanes. I mean, you know when getting ready to take off in the winter months, they're going to de-ice the plane. And it, it, it's going to take up to half an hour. It'd be nice to have coatings on the aircraft skin and the automobiles where the surfaces do not ice up. So we use again superhydrophobic coating. And here we froze it to minus 60 degrees C, lowest temperature we expect automotive or uh, aeroplane to see, and then we drop a super cooled water droplet at minus 18 degrees C. So when you put a super cold, super cooled water droplet <coughs> on the surface, it just sticks on it. Whereas in the case of superhydrophobic surface, it rolls off and freezes on the substrate underneath. Here, we take a, a super cooled water bottle and we just spray on the two samples and the superhydrophobic sample, this droplets uh, bounces back and forth. They don't get stuck. Whereas here, the droplet gets stuck on a surface. But by selecting a coatings where you attract water and repel oil, we can use it for oil water separation. So here, we coated on a steel mesh. And we put, I'm going to show you a movie uh, in a second. And we put oil water mixture where oil is dyed blue and water is dyed, I'm sorry, oil is dyed red, water is dyed blue, and uh, this coating uh, attracts water and repels oil. So when you put on it, water goes through, we collect in this beaker, and the oil remains on the top, which then can be collected in another beaker. So here is a demo. So we've got an oil water mixture, and you can see the water is collected in the bottom on the right, Oil stays on the top and you can collect on the left. There are lots of application of oil water separation. We can use it for water purification and for oil water, uh, for oil spill cleanup. And we actually have contracted this technology to a company in South Africa and they're developing water purification unit for African market. And we can also use it for oil spill cleanup. Oil spill cleanup would happen no matter how hard we try. And, what normally oil companies would do, they use toxic chemicals to break up oil, which is environmentally unfriendly, or they may use adsorbent booms uh, uh, to soak up oil, which is very slow. And uh, so here, uh, here's a conceptual schematic of what one could do with our technology. You could create this biospired coated net and put a lot of these behind a boat, and all you do is drive through the oil spill. The buckets will clean up oil, then uh, you pump the oil out, and then you can use the same buckets again. And it could be done in a very environmentally friendly way and very rapidly. So to conclude, the various combinations of super liquidophobic uh, coatings have been prepared. And uh, they demonstrate transparency, self-cleaning, anti-fogging, anti-icing, and oil water separation. Next, I want to talk about uh, shark skin. Shark skin uh, exhibit low drag. And, uh, and, load, uh, and also, uh, they protect surface against fouling. So here is a photograph of a humpback whale in water and a shark underwater. Humpback whale get biofouled with barnacles. Uh, the skin is very dirty. You can see the high magnification images. 
whereas the shark remains clay. In addition, the shark can travel very fast uh, in a turbulent flow. And, uh, and if you know how shark does it, uh, again, this could be used in various applications, both for internal flow and external flow. For internal flow, examples include oil pipelines. There are some 50,000 miles long oil pipelines in this country. Uh, and a few hundred thousand miles long pipelines to pump various uh, fluids. And uh, there's a lot of drag in these pipelines, so it'll be good to reduce that. There are also interests in biomedical applications, such as in catheters and uh, micro nanofluidic based sensors. For external flow, the major application is aeroplane bodies and ship hulls. So, what's the mechanism of drag reduction? So when you look at the skin of the shark at high magnification, it consists of a tiny scales shaped like small riblets with the longitudinal grooves in the direction of motion. So when, uh, oops. So when shark swims fast, it forms vortices. Water goes in circular direction rather than going in the longitudinal direction shark wants to move. So that introduces high shear stresses, which is responsible for high drag. So what nature has done, shown by experiments and modeling, is that if you have riblets present on a surface, these vortices which are formed during the turbulent flow are lifted up, and they're anchored at the tip of the riblets. And you have a normal fluid flow underneath. And that's what's responsible for uh, low drag. Here is a, a simulation of a water flow over the flat surface and it has those riblets but if you do the simulation on a riblet surface those uh, vortices are lifted up and you have normal fluid flow. So we created these structures in the lab simply by laser machining, micro molding and micro machining and we measured the pressure drop which is measure of drag by flow cell and we have shown this using the simple longitudinal riblets, either uh, in one row or two rows, one can reduce the pressure up to 25%. And uh, the major applications of uh, these riblets is in transportation. So they've been experimented with for applications in boat hulls and aeroplane bodies. And Boeing and Airbus being very active over the years. A lot of the work was done by NASA in the 70s. And in uh, one of the studies, uh, the Boeing covered 70% of the aircraft with the plastic sheets with the riblet structures on them. And they found that you get a 3% uh, uh, drag reduction, which is huge. It could make or break an airline uh, by uh, uh, reducing a drag when the fuel is expensive. The major application <coughs> of uh, riblets uh, so far is this. Uh, swimsuits, speedo swimsuit. They were worn by Michael Phelps in uh, 2008 in Beijing Olympics, and we know Michael Phelps very well. He won eight gold medals in Beijing and broke seven world records. And I don't want to take anything away from him, but maybe he had some help from nature uh, in uh, trying to get that extra hundredth of a second is what makes a difference in this international competitions. So to summarize, the vortices generated in turbulent flow contribute to drag. The riblet structures lift the vortices and provide a normal fl fluid flow at the skin responsible for a low drag.
and they could be, we have created those in the lab and they found some commercial applications. Next, I want to talk about water collection. Okay? And I want to make three comments on uh, clean water supply. As we know, the access to clean water is vital for us. And water consumption continues to grow because of growing population. <coughs> so here's a plot of water collection in a trillion meter cube per year, starting from 1980 to projected uh, consumption in 2030. Given that uh, the world population will uh, grow from 6.5 billion to some 10 billion in 2030, uh, water consumption continues to go up. And then uh, uh, water supply is also becoming scarce because of contamination. And also one has to recognize that distribution of clean water is not uniform. Some of you may be surprised to know that 20% of the world clean water supply exists just north of us in Great Lakes. So who knows, in 20 years, the clean water we have in Michigan could become a weapon like oil was in the 70s. And we may be shipping clean water around the world. But we're trying to find ways to supplement that. So water scarcity affects more than 40% of global population and is projected to rise. It is estimated that about 800 million people do not have access to clean water. So here is a grayscale map of population with access to improved water source in 2015. The red represents the regions where less than 65% of people have access to clean water. Yellow represents 83 to 95. So you see that good part of Africa, there's an issue of uh, the clean water. But when you uh, look at next to it, you have part of Asia, India, China, part of Latin America, they all have an uh, issue with uh, access to clean water supply. And it's no longer an Africa problem, it's a worldwide problem. We all know the droughts in California, in Southwest. I used to live in San Jose in mid-80s. We had a drought, and we had a drought until last year in San Jose, and they'll come back. So it is no longer a problem of Africa or some part of the world. It's an international problem. So we need to supplement the water supply by, to meet our future needs. And uh, so we, that's where we look to nature. So we know that uh, in dry areas, you have living species. Even if you go to Nambia in desert, you find desert beetle. You have cactus and desert grass survive in regions where there's no rainfall. And we need to understand how nature does it. And then we try to use the cues from nature to create surfaces in the lab. So here's a photograph of a desert beetle uh, from Nambian desert. So it consists of these bumps, if you can see it, and they're, uh, and they're surrounded by wax. So in the night, there's condensation of fog, and that will wax these bumps, the hydrophilic spot, the, the, they have an affinity to water, and as the beetle crouches, the water moves to the uh, suprahydrophobic region, the wax region, in surrounding area, water can stay there, and then goes to the next spot, goes to the next spot, makes it to the beetle's mouth. And this is how beetle feeds itself. Then you have desert grass. Desert grass has the channels. And the channels facilitate water flow, the condensation of the fog. And then the most interesting one is the cactus. Cactus has a, 
conical spine with the barbs at the end and, uh, and it's a conical spine which provides an efficient method of moving this water from barbs to the base because the water pressure uh, water pressure of a droplet uh, is referred to as a Laplace pressure Laplace pressure is inversely related to radius so what is happening here when you go from tip uh, to this end your radius is increasing and so that means your Laplace pressure is decreasing so what you're doing by having a geometrical gradient you're creating a Laplace pressure gradient and that allows this water to move very rapidly here is a movie which shows what happens when you put a droplet at the end of the cactus and cactus is standing upside down so here the water droplet is moving from bottom to up against the gravity so we created these surfaces in the lab inspired by beetle inspired by cactus and this work by the way is funded by CAPS by Dr. J. Holick's uh, center and, uh, and we find that amount of water we collect is a lot more than you collect on a flat surface that's a movie we just made two days ago so here we created this uh, conical arrays by using 3D photolithography and you see the droplet the moving up against the gravity so we clearly see that you can move the water in, uh, in the direction of geometrical gradient and then if you know how to do it in the lab then we can scale it up we can create large nets we can create towers okay and people have done it not by, by inspiration just to collect water in Chile and other countries and Fognet is a, a big been a big program but we believe that with this we can increase the efficiency and we can have a central water collection station or we could create a little units which could be used at homes for people to have clean supply of water last thing I want to talk about the mosquito and uh, you'll be surprised why, why I'm fascinated with the mosquito and you'll see that in a minute so they represent painless piercing so, so to give you a general background of uh, insects there are some 10 million different species of animals and plants which are known to exist on earth and anthropods where the spineless bodies and insects are part of that form about 70 to 80 percent of the animal population and so these anthropods attack other organisms and create a medical problem some simply attack their prey to punish them if you bother wasp it's going to come and bite you it doesn't want anything from you it wants to be left alone but if you bother them if you think that you're getting in their territory they're going to come and sting you where the others will feast on a host for food food could be plant nectar sap blood in the case of human beings or animals or other organism and for feeding they may either bite if they want to eat the flesh or the pierce and suck so we classified them as biters piercers and suckers and stingers so one of, one of the job I have is to come up with the terminology <laughs> I create a lot of terms and, and they're going to be catchy that's important uh, even in science uh, that people can relate to it so here are some examples of biters stingers and piercers and suckers biters caterpillar and spider the bite on flesh <coughs> you can see their jaws here stingers honeybees wasp scorpion 
they want to sting you. And when they sting you, when they pierce into you, they release venom, which really hurts when they leave. And then you have piercers and suckers. So they want to feed on you, and they want to make it very comfortable for you while they're feeding on you. They don't want you to know that they are on your body. So, and the examples of the plant lice, bad bug, fly, tick, and mosquito. So next, I want to talk about uh, uh, mosquito. So their example of painless piercing, and it's a female mosquitoes which feed on humans for blood to feed their egg. And the blood feeding takes about five minutes. So can you imagine you have a mosquito sitting on your body for five minutes, sucking your blood, you don't even know it. And you realize later on, the mosquito has stung. And so that, here's an example of a painless piercing. And they do it by the mouth part known as a fascicle. It's like a micro needle. And this cartoon shows three stages of the feeding process. So what mosquito does first, it sits on the body and it sprays saliva. One of the protein components of saliva acts as a numbing agent. Okay, first it numbs your skin. And then it seeks a blood vessel, takes its time, about a minute or two, to find it. And then it pierces in the blood vessel and it'll sit there up to five minutes to suck the blood. And while it's sucking, that saliva which has sprayed, one of the protein components also acts as an anti-blood clotting agent. So it doesn't want to clot the blood while it's sucking so that you don't feel it. Okay. Okay. And then it leaves. So that's a three-step process. So what are the keys to painless piercing? So what is it we learned from it? One, you need, it does numbing. Second, uh, we have uh, we made major properties of fascicles, so we collect mosquitoes and, and then we measure the mechanical properties of the fascicle and we find that it has a gradient in mechanical properties, they're not uniform. And here is a grayscale map. So it's soft uh, and compliant at the tip and it gets stiffer and harder as it goes in and same thing is from outside in. So the tip is soft. It wants to make it comfortable while it's starting to pierce. But then, uh, as, it, uh, as it continues to pierce, it's going to have some mechanical strength so that uh, the fascicle does not bend or break. It also has a serrated design. It looks like a hexagon. Okay? And it has a vibratory motion. So, so what mosquito is doing? It's got a soft tip. It pushes into you. It sprays the saliva to numb it, then it goes in a vibrating mode with uh, like a hexaw, and it cuts into the body. It's got also anti-blood clotting properties in saliva, you don't know it, it sucks the blood, and then it's gone. So what can we do with it? We can design a painless microneedle for biomedical applications, either for uh, uh, tests or for drug delivery. And what you've done in this cartoon is we've incorporated the four features which you learned from mosquito. So you want to have a numbing sprayer. You, you want to spray uh, a numbing fluid to start with. The needle which you use should have a sedative design. 
then it should be vibrating while it's going in. And uh, we've done the same thing with the wasp and honeybees, and this could be used for various biomedical applications. Now, after this talk, next time a mosquito bites you, first you're going to say, uh, you're not going to be happy, but then after a while, you say, wow, wasn't that amazing? The mosquito was sitting on me, I didn't even know that. Maybe you won't. But I, I do, because I learned a lot from it. I'm sorry? Well, their goal is that you don't detect them. So with that, the painless piercing combination of numbing, sedative design, vibratory actuation, gradient and properties, and you can design microneedles. So with that, I'll conclude my talk by making few general remarks. Nature has a limited toolbox and uses rather basic materials and routine fabrication methods <coughs> and really capitalizes on hierarchical structure, ranging from macro scale down to nanoscale. And the goal in the field of biomimetics is to understand how nature does it and then fabricate structures which we can use for commercial applications by using smart materials and modern nanofabrication techniques. And I believe the biomimetics holds a tremendous promise in commercial applications and it is estimated the market today is on the order of several billion dollars. Next, I'd like to acknowledge a uh, number of my present and past students and postdocs and visiting scholars who do the great work in the lab and then I have the luxury of coming here and presenting it and taking the credit for it. So it really the credit goes to them. And I have a number of them uh, attending the lecture. I'd like them to stand and be recognized. All right. That two-year-old is not working in my lab yet. <laughs> and now I'll leave a few references. I have a book on biomimetics. And this is the second edition. Third edition will come out on November 11th on Amazon. And if you're interested, uh, you may get a hold of the book because most of the work I've talked about today comes from there. So with that, I'll thank you for your attention. And I'm happy to take questions. takes questions, I just want to remind everybody that there is a reception on the second floor in the traditions room, so please join us afterwards uh, for additional discussion and interactions. And I think we have time for uh, a, a number of questions. Yes? One of uh, your examples, you were saying you placed a full drop of water on the hydrophobic glass. I think you said the temperature was negative 18 degrees Celsius, but doesn't water turn Right. If you put exposed water exposed to the low temperature, it freeze ice. So what we do to supercool water, we'll partially fill a bottle of water and we put it in the freezer and you leave it for a couple of hours. And our goal is to get minus 18 degrees C or 0 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the temperature we have selected. And if you leave it for a couple of hours, it gets supercooled, it becomes cold, but it does not freeze. But if you leave it long enough, or if you leave it exposed, it will freeze. Yes? Yeah. 
Yes. Yes, certainly, certainly. I mean, you could use uh, other uh, other filters to do it, but uh, oil represents an organic substance. It doesn't need to be oil. All we're saying uh, is organics have low surface energy. Our goal is to separate them. So, oil is an example of an organic. So, most of the contaminant we're interested in. Are, most of the contaminants which are harmful are organic substance. And this is what this technology allows it to be separated. Then, of course, you've got inorganic, and you could use, as you said, membranes and filters to do that. And I mentioned that we have a company in South Africa which has licensed the technology two years ago, and they're trying to develop purification units for African market. And that does not mean that it's limited to Africa, could be used in other parts of the world. Yes? Could that uh, oil separation technology be used to more economically produce uh, skim milk from a uh, whole milk? Skim milk from whole milk. Yeah, where it's got like 4%. Uh, right, I understand. So the fat, you're trying to remove the fat from oil. I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I don't know how fat milk is produced. So. Yeah, maybe. Um, this would be an opportunity for collaboration with the food science department. Absolutely, I'd love to do it. Well, my goal is by end of this talk, I, I might uh, have recruited a collaborator. <laughs> <laughs> and I won't mind a 12-year-old either. <laughs> Are there questions or comments? I'm sorry, yes? No, they're not. But uh, uh, NASA started this worked back in the 70s. So you see a lot of publications, and then Boeing and Airbus have been doing it, a lot of that. And there is a German Aerospace Institute. It's uh, an institute funded by Airbus, and they do a lot of research, and the reason we know it is it's an institute and they're able to publish it. So they're all been working on it for a number of years. But as far as I know, nobody's using uh, the, those riblet structured skins yet. But they've experimented with it, and uh, we don't know what all they're doing internally. But one of the things we need to recognize is that it takes a decade sometimes or more for technology to make it from lab to the marketplace. You know, when you're working in the lab and you develop a technology, and we're very excited as a scientist. Wow, this does it. But it takes forever for technology to leave the lab because now somebody has to mass produce it, have to test it, okay, it has got to be cost effective and all that. So as far as I know, nobody's using it. That speedo swimsuit is the only uh, application I know of which has been used. But there, there are some other swimsuit too. There's a dolphin inspired swimsuit in, uh, made by a German company. Yes? You. Is there a biologic example of an antimicrobial property? Yes. We've done it. Yes, uh, we can use it for anti-fouling. I didn't show you any any example today. And we created structures uh, about two years ago. We exposed it to E. coli because my collaborator I was working with in medical school uh, was working with E. coli. We exposed it to that, uh, a flat sample and texture sample, 
and we were able to show that we can remove, we, we get 30% less biofouling on a structured sample compared to a flat sample. Absolutely. Uh, I'm interested in food packaging applications. <coughs> and we've done a lot of work on polypropylene. That's a material commonly used in food packaging. And, uh, and these coatings could be used for uh, anti-biofouling, absolutely. I, yeah. I have a question about polar versus non-polar uh, liquids. Uh, right. Liquid. Excellent question. Well, we started working with superhydrophobic surface in repelling water. Today's piece of cake. You can do it in your sleep. Then uh, people started trying to repel oil, which is more difficult. And the reason is oil has a low surface, lower surface energy than water. Water is 72 millinewton per meter, and oil, depending on what oil you're talking about, is 20 to 40. Petroleum oil is about 40, hexadecane is about 28. But then you start looking at a polar uh, liquids where you have this chemically active uh, compounds, and then it's more than having a surface of lower surface energy. You have to create what we refer to as reentrant geometries to, in order to be able to repel them. And that's the problem we had with shampoo and detergent. So that was uh, next uh, uh, step up for us in research. Shampoo and detergent could not be repelled just by using a lower surface energy material because they have the dispersant. That's how you clean uh, with the soap. And uh, we had to create some special geometries to be able to repel it. It's much more difficult to repel a polar liquid than it is to repel a non-polar liquid. And what are no other known polar? Yeah? I was wondering if uh, you ever uh, thought about using the oil and the water in the suppression system, in the digestive system. You know, oil makes the food very tasty, but at the same time, you eat it, you gain weight. Yeah. And, uh, if you can look at it, find the way that you can uh, separate the oil as you eat it. <laughs> That'd be nice. I'll be the first one to use it. <laughs> yeah, I mean they just. Yeah. I mean there are lots and lots of applications. I barely scratched the surface. I only talked about a few species. Remember that 1.7 million species, and people are gonna pick a species species based on their interest. My interest, I mean, uh, a, a, a interface science guy, I'm interested in interfaces. So all of the applications I've selected are the ones where I'm trying to reduce adhesion, try to increase adhesion, repel liquid, attract liquid. But there are many other species which will provide other functionalities. And, and for a given species, there'll be many, many applications as being talked about here. So I, I saw some 20 year olds. I mean, I'd like to see some questions from uh, you know, aspiring scientists. <coughs> Do you have a question? No, <laughs> he, he will ask it at the reception. At the reception. Oh, sure. All right. Please yeah. join me in thanking Dr. Bhutan.